in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was the governor of Judea, Herod Tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip Tetrarch of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Licinius Tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah in the wilderness. He went into all the country around the Jordan preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the wilderness. Prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight, the rough ways smooth. And all people will see God's salvation. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Oh God, we pray that you will guide our thoughts, our hearts, as we consider your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as you know, by now we are in the midst of the Advent season, that time of year when we think about the, the coming of Jesus, the first coming of Jesus, but also the a second coming of Jesus. And so just to remind you that uh, you can go back and catch up with our Advent season by going to adventhope.org where you'll find Saba Wangpa's great message from last week as we got started on this journey, considering the first Advent and what it teaches us about the second Advent. And so today we are looking at a central uh, character in the Advent story, actually both Advent stories, uh, Jesus' cousin, uh, John. Now, John was a serious guy. Uh, we are told in the account of the disciple Matthew this about John. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had just a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan, confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. So this, uh, this description implies that uh, he came dressed and, and, and looking like the prototypical prophet that a person in first century Judea would imagine. I mean, when they thought about what a prophet was, they thought back to Elijah and Elisha and those prophets of old. And so uh, John comes now with all of the imagery of those uh, ancient uh, prophets, not influenced by fashion, diet not glamorous, preached in a far-off and desolate location that people had to make an effort to get to. He wasn't in the city where it was easy. You could just go around the block to the, or, or jump on the subway and, and get to the, to the sermon for the day. You had to go out into the wilderness because he was out in the wilderness uh, uh, preaching. He was hard to, hard to get to. And then finally his words were straightforward, blunt even. We're told in Luke chapter 3 that he preached uh, that to, to the Pharisees and the Sadducees calling them, you brood of vipers. Now these are the, the religious and the political leaders of the day, they come out, they make the trip out to see him in the wilderness, and he immediately 
uh, calls them out. You brood of vipers. This is not a compliment. You call your political official. I mean, some of us may want to call our political or religious officials a brood of vipers. John did it in a public forum. You brood of vipers. You bunch of snakes. He was straightforward, blunt even. And yet his overall message was a very uh, simple one. Repent and produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Verse 8 of Luke chapter 3. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Don't begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. He's talking to people who come from the lineage uh, of Abraham. Don't say to yourself, oh, we're, we're, we're good. We come from Abraham. He's our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children of Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What he's saying is, look, look, it doesn't matter what your lineage is. It also doesn't matter if you just affirm that you believe in a faith system or did at one point in your, in your history. If 27 years ago you said, I think I'm going to be a Christian now, or I think I'm going to be a, a, a Seventh-day Adventist now. That, that, that this faith journey that, that of repentance and producing fruit in accordance with repentance, it doesn't work that way. You can't just affirm that you did this or your, your family goes way back in the church. That's not how it, it works. You need to repent and produce fruit, current, live fruit today in accordance with that repentance. And so it was a, a tough word and people flocked. I mean, he must have been compelling. People flocked to the desert, to listen to him, to the wilderness, to listen to this, this guy. Repent and produce fruit in keeping with repentance. You can't just say that you expressed faith and claim it one time in the distant past, but that this is supposed to be a living and breathing uh, thing. And so this idea of, of repentance actually has a long history even before John in the, in the Bible. As the Bible narrative teaches, uh, everyone is innately out of alignment with God. Our relationship with God is in a, a broken state, and repentance is acknowledging that, uh, that out of whackness, if you will, and is the key to alignment taking place. And so, so what, what, what is repentance specifically, though? So in the, the ancient uh, word, in the Hebrew, the word that is most often uh, translated as repentance literally means to turn around, to turn around. And so the idea here is that, and this is an ancient metaphor, by the way, the idea that we are on a walk with God. We're on a journey. And, uh, and so throughout the Old Testament in particular, you have this idea that humans are walking with God. They're designed to walk with God, but occasionally we get off on the wrong path, heading in the wrong direction. And it's at that point in which we need uh, repentance, to acknowledge that we are heading in the wrong direction. Now, my, my favorite illustration of this, and you may have heard this before, so bear with me, for, for us here in New York is, is when we go into the subway. You know, when you go into the subway and you go to a part of the, maybe the boroughs that you haven't been to recently or maybe never before, and you, you come out of the subway and you want to be the confident New, New Yorker who knows where they're going, and so you just start walking. You, know, you don't want to be that person... That's a tourist. You don't want to do that. So you just start boldly walking. And so you walk for three or four or five blocks, and then you start just, there's a sense. This is not 
right. And so you do what you have to do. You pull out the phone and you get out your app of choice. Today's message is sponsored by Google Maps. You get out Google Maps and you, you look at where, where you're supposed to be going, the dot you're supposed to be going and the, and the place that you are. And I don't, you, my phone is always, it never, you know, the direction is supposed to tell you the aim, the arrow, and it doesn't seem to be the, the thing that does that. It's always a little off, so I'm always, but then you recognize at some point you are heading in the wrong direction and you repent. And repent literally is to acknowledge that you're heading in the wrong direction and to start heading in the right direction. That's what the, the old, they didn't have subways, but that's what they meant in the, the Hebrew, to turn around. I was in uh, Atlanta last month, and uh, you may have seen that we, you know, when one of us aren't here or whatever, we'll do the video announcements. Yeah, I, thank you. You gave me feedback on this because, I, first of all, I was out of breath. It was very shaky. I was out of breath. So the, the additional funny, it was very cold. I also, it was like the fourth take because I'm never satisfied with how those are, are looking. And so I was, Kyle was like, you've got to just send this. So I just sent the thing. Of course, I had walked by that time 20 blocks in the wrong direction, filming out of breath, whatever. Anyway, so I know what it's like to walk in the wrong direction. I had to turn around and go all the way back another distance the other way. Anyway, that is repentance, acknowledging that you were going in the wrong direction. Uh, but John says that repentance also leads to uh, a change. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight the paths for him. The idea is that there, this repentance, this acknowledgement that you're, head in, that you're heading in the wrong direction and turning around is going to result in behavior change. You're going to be uh, different. You're going to be uh, changed. There's going to be fruit that is produced because of this repentance. This is the implication. Now, this sounds great. It makes a lot of sense when you're heading in the wrong direction. You should acknowledge you're heading in the wrong direction and head in the right direction. The problem is, for most of us, uh, acknowledging that we are heading in the wrong direction is, uh, ironically, difficult. And changing our behavior is even more challenging. This doesn't seem like it makes any sense, but this is how we work. And so what are some of the factors that make acknowledging that we're heading in the wrong direction difficult and changing our behavior is even more challenging? First of all, you know, we have a really difficult time acknowledging that we are wrong anytime. I mean, I don't know about you, but I have this issue that the acknowledging that I'm just completely wrong sometimes is uh, really, really incredibly uh, challenging. Now, I looked into this, like, what is wrong with us that we do do this? So one of the problems is uh, confirmation bias. Have you heard of confirmation bias? This is really the tendency to search for things or interpret things in favor of what you already believe. So you, you, you start walking and you're, you're totally headed in the wrong direction, but you're like, you know, I think I've seen that building somewhere before. And so you interpret your path saying, I've got to be right. I couldn't possibly be wrong. See, we start with the idea that we must be right. And so then all of the data that we get, we, we use to confirm our beliefs, whatever, even if they're completely wrong. This is confirmation uh, bias. And of course, this is rampant now. In fact, you could make a case that social media and all of this is just feeding this because we, we curate our feeds to only support the ideas that we already have. 
right? I mean, sociologists are recognizing this is an incredible communication problem now. All of our feeds are designed and, and all of, our, our, all of the, the companies that are sending us information are wanting to give us things that we'll like. They don't want to disturb us because they also want to sell us things, right? So they're going to only give us the things that we like. They're not going to challenge us. And so all of this just feeds our confirmation bias. And this seems to be an innate thing that we have. Catherine Sanderson points out in her book, Social Psychology, this. And this is a quote from her. We ignore information that disputes our expectations. We are more likely to remember and repeat stereotype consistent information and to forget or ignore stereotype inconsistent information which is the way that stereotypes are maintained and even, even in the face of disconfirming evidence. You get that? So, so, so we, when we think of a stereotype, we have a belief about things. Uh, we remember the things that support that belief, but things that dispute that belief, we tend to just forget. She says, uh, if you learn that your new Canadian friend hates hockey and loves sailing, and that your new Mexican friend hates spicy food and loves rap music, you are less likely to remember this new stereotype inconsistent information. So this is how stereotypes are built. We have a stereotype about, okay, this group of people is from this place uh, where they look this way and so they must be this thing. Now you might get all kinds of information saying, all kinds of data saying the ab absolute opposite, but your, 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 your initial belief is so strong that it overcomes the data. This is disturbing, right? This is the reality, that most of us suffer from confirmation bias. We believe certain things, right or wrong, and we get data, and all the data that we get, we, we either choose data that only supports that belief, or we hear data that disputes it, and we choose to ignore it, or we fit it into our belief system. Uh, another uh, quote here from social psychology, a, a doctor who has jumped to a particular hypothesis, this was studied, as to what, a disease, what, what disease a patient has, uh, oftentimes will continue on with their diagnosis that they feel they have a gut feeling about, even when they're absolutely wrong. Uh, Groupman, the author of this book, suggests that medical training should include a course in inductive reasoning that would make doctors aware of such biases, awareness, he thinks, would lead to fewer diagnostic errors. So doctors are making errors because they're like, I see this symptom, this must be this. They go in on that belief. Evidence comes in that disputes that, but they're sticking with the original belief. This is confirmation bias. We don't like acknowledging that we are wrong, and a lot of this is subconscious. We're not even necessarily thinking, I'm going to be biased about things. It's going on in our, in our psyche. Uh, secondly, the sunk cost fallacy. This is a, 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 another a trait that we have. Once we've invested, once we've walked seven blocks, we're like, well, I've already walked seven blocks. It must be this way. We've sunk so much effort in going the wrong direction. We think, well, it, we can't, it can't be not this way. It's not rational. That's not rational. You have to walk around the world, and you're going to come back. And you, I mean, sometime you're going to get there. Sunk cause. I've, I've gone this far already. I might as well just keep uh, uh, going. But if you're walking in the wrong direction, you're walking in the wrong direction. Everybody okay? We're good? Okay. Okay. So, we have a difficult time acknowledging when we're going in the wrong direction. This is one of the reasons why 
repenting is so uh, difficult. Turning around is so difficult. Uh, secondly, sometimes the wrong direction is or seems a lot easier than the, the right direction. Um, I was in Los Angeles over the summer for a wedding. Beautiful wedding in Los Angeles, Advent Hopers. I was there. And so in a moment when the wedding was not happening, I escaped by myself. And so I got in a, a lift. Today's message is also sponsored by Lyft. And, and so I went to, I was trying to get to the Griffith Observatory. Do you know the Griffith? Is there anyone from Los Angeles here, from Southern California? Have you ever been to the Griffith Observatory? Okay, Carlos, you've been there. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful view of the city. Also a really cool place. You remember the film La La Land? Remember they were dancing in the observatory? That was Griffith Observatory. So I'm like, I'm going to Griffith Observatory. I like the stars. I like the whole thing. So, so I, I go, and there's some kind of concert happening at the, at the bottom of the foothills. And so the guy's like, this is as far as I can take you, but you can walk up there. So I'm like, okay, I'm ready for a good walk, not knowing what was before me. So I get out, and I start walking. And you know when you walk in New York, I mean, in New York we have like the straight road. You just walk down Lexington Avenue and it's straight. That's not how it works in Southern California, you, especially in the mountains. You've got this, this, so I actually have a picture here. So there's the observatory. This is the picture I took. So I'm walking and the observatory feels like it's right there. If I could fly, it would, I'd be there in like a 30 seconds. But the, the road is very, very curvy. And, and, walk, and so I'm walking and walking and walking like an hour in. I'm like, what? And I look back, and there's the beautiful city of Los Angeles shining before me. And there is this, this observatory on a hill, but oh, so far away. And so I did think to myself, it would be a lot easier just to go, to go back. I'm sure there are exciting things to do down in the city. Even though I wanted to go to the observatory, it was... A challenge. It would have been a lot easier to turn around. Now, I did continue on, and it was magnificent, and you definitely should go if you are in, in Los Angeles. Uh, but sometimes it, it seems a lot easier to go in the opposite direction than in the right direction. And so uh, this inhibits us from repenting, from turning around. Just keep going in the wrong direction. It's a lot easier. Uh, finally, the, if we're really honest, the wrong direction sometimes does seem to have some advantages. I mean, you know, some of those times you get out of the subway, I'm in a new neighborhood, I head, head in the wrong direction, I'm walking in the wrong direction, and realize that I, you know, I've got to go back the other way if I want to get to where I'm supposed to be, but decide, you know what, this neighborhood seems cooler. I think I'm just going to, I'm going to stay here. I don't know if you've, ever, if you've ever done this. Once you realize that you're in the wrong place, you're just, I'm going to go with it. I'm going to lean into the wrong. Sometimes the wrong direction does seem to have advantages. And so, oh, well, I'm already here. Might as well stay here. Why turn around and go in the opposite way? And so the bottom line is here uh, is that we are, as humans, really messed up. Now, I really find great hope in this, that we can come together as a, as a community and say how messed up we are. Isn't that beautiful? I mean, this has got to be one of the greatest advantages of any faith, that, that Christians can come together and say that we are messed up, that we have 
things like confirmation bias, that we have sunk cost fallacy, that sometimes we find the easier way, uh, the, 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 the way that we end up going. And sometimes when we're in the wrong direction, we just lean into it and stay there. We are messed up. We got something going on in the head oftentimes that just doesn't make sense. We do things that don't make any sense. And so to be able to acknowledge that in front of you, I feel good about that. Do you feel good about that? Can you say, you are messed up. Did you know that? Say, you, you are messed Say, I am messed up. Doesn't that feel fantastic? I mean, by the way, I mean, you're in New York. So you, you don't want to, you don't want to go in your workplace and say that, well, I'm really messed up. We can come together here as a community of faith and say, we are really, really messed up. Something is, is wrong with us. This is one of the beautiful elements of of Christianity. No wonder James, the apostle, this is an apostle. He says, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you can be healed. Hey, come together and just recognize that you're messed up and then confess to each other how messed up you are. I mean, that's what the church community is supposed to be like, a place where you can just acknowledge that you are messed up. I'll tell you what, you really want to, you really want to go to a place, and oftentimes this happens at churches where things are a complete mess, it's a place where people are not free to be transparent about their messed upness. Everybody's got to act like they all have it together. You know what I'm talking about? This happens in, in Christian churches. When you lean into moralism, you have to have it all together on your own. Environments where moralism uh, flourishes, those are places that can be mean and nasty because everybody has to pretend like they have it all together. You guys with me? We don't have to pretend like we have it all together. We do not have it all together. We have some systemic problems in our very being as humans. This is very bad news. The good news is that we can come together as a community of faith and acknowledge that and have hope that there is something. There is someone who can help us. Thank God for this. We are messed up. This is the good news. We are screwed up. There's, we're not going to fix it on our own. But there is one who has done what we cannot do. You know, Jesus didn't take the easy uh, direction. In Luke chapter 22 and verse 42, maybe in Jesus' most transparent uh, moment, he's there. It's the night before he knows he's to be uh, killed. And he's wrestling with his, with his father, with his dad. And he calls out, Father, if you are willing Take this cup from me. Take what's about to, to, to happen to me from me. May this not happen if you're willing. But your will be done, not mine. Uh, Jesus didn't take the easy route in any way, in any form and fashion. And even in his most intimate moment, he was willing to move on with a difficult a choice. Jesus also asked for forgiveness, in essence repented for us. As he's dying on the cross, Father, again, Father, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Jesus repented for us before we repented for ourselves. This is great news. The bad news is you are messed up. We can come together as a community of faith in a great city that does not want to, to allow anyone to, to, to mess up, does not promote messing up. We can come together as a community of faith and acknowledge that we are really messed up as human beings. But there's good news to follow that bad news. God has done what we cannot do. Jesus didn't take the easy way. Jesus 
has already repented for us. He's already asked for forgiveness for us. And Jesus then didn't wait for everyone else to get on board with his repentance for us. In Romans chapter 5 and verse 6, the Apostle Paul writes this, you see, at just the right time, when we as humans were still powerless, Jesus died for the ungodly, those who are heading in the wrong direction. Jesus died for those who are heading in the wrong direction. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, while we were still going in the wrong direction, Christ died for us. He didn't wait till we figured it out, we turned ourselves around, we started heading in the right direction and said, okay, you've got it together, now I'm going to come and act on your behalf. Christ died for the ungodly. 1 John chapter 2. My dear children, I write this to you so that you won't sin, so that you won't head in the wrong direction. But if anyone does head in the wrong direction, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, the one who's always in the right direction. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. See, humanity heading in the wrong direction, but the one who was always heading in the right right direction died on our behalf, sacrificed himself while we were still ungodly, while we were still going in the wrong direction didn't wait for us to get it together and turn ourselves around. God has done for us what we cannot do for ourselves before we even knew we weren't, were headed in the wrong direction. The invitation today is that as we recognize and acknowledge what God has done for us, that there is hope that God can transform our broken characters that we don't have to endlessly be heading in the wrong direction, that we can know what the right direction is, and that we can live living in the right direction. But this is not from ourselves, that this is God's work within us. In John chapter 14, Jesus himself says, the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything that I have said to you and will teach you how to walk in the right direction. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 10, again, the Apostle Paul who writes a lot about this. These are the things that God has revealed to us by his Spirit. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. What we have received is not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given to us. This is why we speak, not in the words taught to us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the spirit, explaining spiritual realities with spirit-taught words. The person without the spirit does not accept the things that come from the spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the spirit. The person with the Spirit makes judgments about all things, but such a person is not subject to merely human judgments. For who knows the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. It's a lot of words. Go back and read that on your own. What is Paul, Paul is saying is, look, the Spirit 
gives us discernment that as humans we don't naturally have. And as we acknowledge what God has done through Jesus on our behalf, and we are awakened to the fact that we are heading in the wrong direction, when God's Spirit speaks to our hearts and we are open and receptive to what He's saying to us, God can start working changes in us that we will never make on our own. Even giving us the power for repentance in the first place to recognize we are heading in the wrong direction and power to turn around and start walking in the right direction. See, we've already said you have a very difficult time doing this on your own because you have biases and you have things that are inhibiting you and you, 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 you believe in a certain way and you just support your belief even when it's completely wrong. But as the Spirit starts working in your heart, in a person's mind, they can start changing thoughts, changing perceptions of how the world works, and opening us up to a whole new reality, giving us, in essence, the mind of God. This is the promise to all humans, because Jesus died for everyone. It doesn't matter what your background is, where you come from, what you learned as a child, what kind of family you were, you were from. Everyone has access to this Spirit. Paul says again, I say to you, walk by the Spirit. It's again this, this metaphor of walking together with God. It's just going for a walk together. That life is a walk together. We've got to walk in, in, in Central Park. I mean, I, I love walking with people. The metaphor is that God wants to walk with us. And when we head off in the wrong direction, He wants to bring us back into the right direction. So I say walk by the Spirit, and you won't gratify the desires of your flesh. The fruit of walking with the Spirit is love and joy, peace and patience, kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. Against these things there's no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus i.e. those who have embraced what God has done through Christ Jesus, those who belong to Christ, Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Keep walking with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. See, when you start to think that you've got this all figured out on your own, which is a problem for Christians in particular who start moralizing everything and start thinking, oh, we got it figured out on our own. You know, we're doing pretty good. You know, we're better than other people. When you start doing that, that leads to provoking and envying of each other. And this does not work. It's certainly horrific for a community of faith. But when you recognize that God does everything uh, good and any good that you have is coming from, from him, and you're walking with him, then it transforms and changes not just you as an individual, but as a community. If we can all come together and recognize like any goodness that we have is not coming from ourselves, but from, from God working in us, then we can be relaxed together. We don't have to backbite each other. We don't have to look at each other and say, well, this, you know what they did. Because we're all messed up. John who came before Jesus, when he started talking about Jesus himself. His first message was repent and, and live lives in accordance with repentance. But as it got closer to, to Jesus' arrival, he said about Jesus, I baptize you with water. This is John. I baptize you with water. 
but one who is more powerful than I will come. The straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to unite. This was mind-blowing to the people because they thought John was the man. They traveled to the wilderness to go listen to him, and they thought he was the promised one. And they were listening to every word that he has to say. And so when he turns his attention not to himself, but to someone else, their ears were alerted. He said, I'm not even worthy to, 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 to tie the sandals of the one who is coming. He will baptize you, not with water, but with the Spirit. The great hope, the great promise of the good news is that God has worked on our behalf through Jesus at a certain time in human history, nearly 2,000 years ago now, or more than 2,000 years ago now, but also has the ability to work in our heart, your and mine, today, that his power isn't just related to some time back in human history, that God wants to work in the hearts of you and me now in a, a broken world that needs people who are transformed, who are not walking in the wrong direction, a direction that is usually uh, uh, identified by being selfish and self-centered, but walking in a new way. As we embrace the work of Jesus, the one who has done what we could not, God can work in us to lead us to repentance, to transform our lives, lives rooted in him. This Advent season, as we continue to contemplate the first coming of Jesus. May we take heart that the second coming is coming soon. And as we wait for that coming, you and I and all people can be transformed by God's work through his spirit in us. Amen.